This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 82. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 82 you're currently listening to. And it is brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. Welcome again. Got a great show for you. Got a great guest, Justin Phelps. Maybe you know Justin, maybe you don't, but he's up in Portland, Oregon. He did spend a chunk of time here in the Bay Area, but ended up moving back to a place where, man, it's beautiful. Uh, cost of living is good, and he is the chief engineer and designer of the Hallowed Halls Recording Studio up there. This is a former library up there. Beautiful place. You know, engineer, producer, mixer, mastering guy, doing his thing, has worked with uh, a ton of people. I'm going to just read a few people off of his his discography here. You might know some of these names. Amanda Palmer, Dead Kennedys, Cake. Let's see, the Neville Brothers, I think you know who that is. Jolie Holland, Chuck Prophet, Joe Satriani, Atomic Ape, uh, Secret Chiefs, uh, Bob Weir and Rat Dog. Uh, Ziggy Modaliste, of course, Ziggy, drummer from The Meters. Bunch of people. Anyways, uh, did a stint here in the Bay Area, worked at various studios, and then eventually uh, met his wife, and they moved their family back to Portland, Oregon, where Justin grew up. So it makes a lot of sense. They're in a beautiful place. Cost of living is great. Great music scene, good place to be, Portland, Oregon. So Justin Phelps coming up, excited to have a chat with him. And let's see, some things to tell you about. Um, I was watching on Netflix the documentary that's it's about two hours long, I think it was, on Lemmy. Very interesting look at his life before he died. And a few things are pretty fascinating that I didn't ever realize or was made aware of, but uh, lived in a very modest apartment full of memorabilia. Uh, you know, the guy, you know, did write some songs for uh, Ozzy Osbourne and the Ramones and I think Lita Ford as well. So while he was, you know, on paper worth a lot, he did not have a very extravagant lifestyle. It's uh, very uh, interesting. He was more into his music and what he was doing. That seemed to be more important to him than uh, having a ginormous place. So what you will see is this uh, very small apartment full of stuff, just full of uh, fan stuff and stuff he's collected over the years. Pretty interesting, but uh, intriguing, intriguing show to watch about him. Uh, man, what a character. What a, what a true original and uh, inspiring on, on numerous levels. You know, he's a guy that really stuck to his guns and just did what was right for him. Uh, may have not worked for everybody else, but uh, worked for him. And uh, yeah, Lemmy. The uh, documentary. Very interesting. So check that out. The other thing I wanted to turn you on to is a book that I'm checking out right now. It's called The Joy of Less, A Minimalist Guide to Declutter, Organize, and Simplify. It's by uh, Francine J. And if you followed other past episodes where I've mentioned uh, Graham Hill and his TED Talk on decluttering and digitizing and getting stuff organized and uh, getting the stuff you don't use out of your life, this is kind of more on that idea. So, and by the way, if you're, if you're not interested in that and you just want to fast forward by all means, of course, uh, I, I don't want you to be under the impression I'm trying to push some kind of minimalist cult type following on you. That's not the case, but I got to say this, um, 
this concept of really kind of getting a bunch of crap out of your life is really working for me. I got to say, it's keeping me uh, more organized and just stemming the inflow of crap just enters our life. You know, hey, you want some free cables and some free power cords and you want, and you know, mail's coming in and, you know, just, hey, here's my CD, check it out. And, you know, just all kinds of stuff is coming in. Uh, all the time. Hey, do you need some free absorbers that we just tore out of my studio? You know, that kind of a thing. All that kind of stuff is always coming at me, which is great in some levels. In fact, I'm a magnet for free computers. I don't know why, but I am. So what I try to do, like with that stuff, for example, is I get a free computer, I clean it up, and I just pay it forward and pass it on to somebody in need who needs it, you know, uh, you know, whether it's a student or whether it's a, a teacher or... Uh, you know, maybe it's a single mom or a single dad that just doesn't have the income and needs to get uh, a computer for their kid, anything like that. That's, I think that's the, the kind of, um, that's the, that's the part of it that I really like is really just giving, when I give stuff away, I love that feeling when it helps someone else out. So, uh, at any, any point I, I try to do that. Also try to do that with, uh, friends who have studios that, uh, you know, if I, have something that I don't really need. And I really don't see, you know, the point in putting it up for sale on, uh, one of the sites out there for selling stuff. You know, it's nice to give stuff away in that regard, but also, you know, you come across things that you don't really need that, uh, you could make some money on and you know, that stuff's worth listing anyhow. So yeah, check it out. The joy of less, have a look at it and see how it applies to your life. If, if it even matters to you, maybe you're already an organized person. I don't know, but Anyhow, thought I would pass that along. And I didn't buy the book. I actually downloaded it on my Kindle. I was trying to figure out like, well, I want the book. I want to read the book. But in the spirit of stemming the inflow of stuff, I didn't want to physically have the book. I didn't mind paying for it. So I downloaded it on my Kindle, which I thought was uh, helpful in my mission, my personal mission of doing that. So yeah, check it out. The Joy of Less from Francine J. Um, what else? What else? Let's see. Oh, I do want to mention, you know, we do have... I've mentioned the the hundredth episode uh, that's coming up. Uh, you know, it, this is episode eighty two, so you know we're not that far. So here's a couple things. I can't really tell you everything just yet, but definitely working on some stuff. I had a I had a good meeting the other day with the with a person who will remain nameless at this point. We were talking about what the hundredth episode was, you know, trying to accomplish and what we were trying to do what we wanted it to be like. And I'll say this: if you happen to be traveling to the Bay Area, by some wild chance, the second week of November, and you're a WCA fan, that would be good because uh, you might get to experience the 100th episode in person. And if you're a WCA fan and you're not coming to the Bay Area the second week of November, just make sure you have your uh, computer and a good solid internet connection. And uh, that's all I'll say. We're going to be doing something cool. We're working on it. And uh, I hope it's I hope it turns out as special as we're talking about because uh, it's exciting. Yeah. So there it is. All right, so um, I think it's time to stop mumbling here and let's get on with Mr. Justin Phelps. Yeah, let's do that. Justin Phelps on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know you're kind of between projects and time is limited. Yeah, today's one of those three project days, you know, um, little bits and pieces, but uh, they all require a lot of concentration. So uh, one thing I want to start with is... uh, you used to live in San Francisco. Correct. How long did you live here and how long were you doing audio in San Francisco? I was there from 90 
until 95 before I started doing audio. And at that point, I was uh, starting art school. You know, I was always doing art and music at the same time back in the 80s when I was growing up. And art was going to win out, but then I got there and I realized that, you know, it was basically the equivalent of um, becoming a rock star or trying to be a, uh, a professional artist. And so I was like, well, forget this. You know, I'm just going to go back and play in a band for a while and figure out what I'm going to do here. And so I dropped it out of the expensive art school down there and uh, got back in a band and um, started doing booking again, which I dabbled in a little bit. That kind of turned me on to, you know, working with different bands. And so, you know, I just on a whim decided to take this recording program at the, uh, the city college I was taking business classes at and uh, really dug it, you know. And, you know, after a couple semesters, I'm just like, forget it, man. I'm just going straight for this. So I, you know, went to a place called uh, California Recording Institute. Graduated from there in 96 and just went straight into Coast Recorders. And that was it. I never looked back. Was Dan Alexander running Coast Recorders at that time? Oh, yeah. Dan and John Cunaberti. Your relationship with John goes back pretty far. To the beginning. To the beginning. Wow. Abs- absolutely. It's a long ago, you know, short-term ex-girlfriend of mine uh, introduced me to the second engineer there at Coast when I was in school. And uh, he coordinated an interview with John for me, you know, just before I graduated. Uh, and uh, it would have been this month, 20 years ago. So that was it. Yeah. You know, I remember walking to John's office, you know, it's huge studio. And, you know, like I said, I've been playing in bands for, I don't know, 15 years at that point. I started pretty young and, um, uh, you know, I'd spent some time in studio. So I, you know, I knew what they looked like and everything. I wasn't you know, completely on Mars, but, you know, it was an exciting time, you know, kind of walking off a cliff like that, you know, just going, okay, I'm going to completely leave the past behind here. I'm not going to play in bands anymore. I'm not going to work in the restaurant industry. I'm going to do something else. So just for clarification now, at that time, when you first started at Coaster Quarters, what year did you say that was? 96? 96, yeah. So if I'm correct, and you correct me if I'm wrong, um, Coaster Quarters run by Dan Alexander was no longer at 1340 Mission, but it was at the old Golden State Recorders building. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. 3rd and Harrison. Third and Harrison, because the uh, the coaster quarters prior to that was it, like I say, thirteen forty Mission and uh, Mission and Tenth Street in San Francisco, and when Dan left that building and went over to the new building, some other folks, uh, Craig Sylvie and Philip Steer, took over coaster quarters and na- re- the old building and renamed it Toast. They did, yeah, those guys. <laughs> funny guys. funny funny joke <laughs> <laughs> obviously trying to hold on to the oast i think name, they pretty but- i think they pretty successfully um uh hoodwinked a lot of people with that one and uh definitely um weren't on uh dan's list of of close friends from that point on <laughs> I, I feel okay, okay in saying that you know time's okay. gone by <laughs> enough time's gone by and we can all look back at it and kind of chuckle maybe um, yeah Okay, so you were at uh, Golden State, the the old Golden State Recorders building. Tell me about. Um, try to sum up what you walked away with from that experience working with Dan, working with John out of that building. You know, I walked away with a couple of lifelong friends first of all, and uh, I was lucky to have that experience. I mean, even for half a decade, where it was the '90s version of the music industry, which uh, is you know in stark contrast to the way things are now. You know, in the sense that, you know, bands that we were working with were working with million-dollar record contracts. There's no exaggeration there. It's, they actually had that much money to spend to make an album and get it out there. So, uh, you know, the way albums are made then is, is much different than it is now. And it actually, you know, 
it's funny, it went off like a light switch. I, mean, I remember um, even in like 2002 or three, all of a sudden dealing with budgets that were below 50,000. And I was kind of shocked, you know, because I'd been working in that world for a little while. I'm talking about artists that were reputable, right? Working right. with budgets like that. You know, there's plenty of artists that were finding a way to get through it or on a tiny label or something like that, you know, that were working with that kind of budget back in the 90s. But there was, you know, anybody who was on Columbia or Sony or, you know, whatever was going on, you know, they had some money to spend. They could spend time in the studio. They could hire in whoever they wanted to play on it. Engineers were, you know, making somewhere between five and a thousand a day. And the studio was was uh, kicking butt at, you know, a thousand to, you know, twelve hundred a day. Right. So uh, it was a, just a much bigger, stronger industry back then. So uh, that was, you know, something I took away from it was the way people operated during that time when there was a lot of uh, financial pressure going on. Right. Right. You know, you, you, you had to deliver. Right. Otherwise, it was going to it was going to be pretty bad for a lot of people. I think that um, that's a valuable thing for an engineer to exist with that kind of pressure on them. What are the big lessons that you learned there? either by mistake, by getting yelled at, or, you know, completely screwing something up, or just by <laughs> pure observation? Well, um, I only got yelled at a couple times I can remember. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> one was that, uh, um, one is that uh, standalone CD burners are uh, not easy to operate, but they're a thing of the past now, so uh, that's, uh, that's not something we have to deal with anymore. But I guess kind of the idea of that is that, you know, when you're preparing a master or even like a reference disc right or uh, at this point like a collection of files you got to make sure that people understand what's going on what it is they're looking at that things are labeled in a way that um that it can translate to someone else down the line who's never been in the room at that point right because you know communication is key and especially when you're getting close to the end of an album you know you really need to have things running smoothly and um leave no margin for error as far as uh you know, what files or masters get sent here and there, you know, in this particular case I'm talking about, it was just a reference disc from the mixes, you know, but they were trying to sequence stuff and as much extra errors that the standalone thing put in on. It was really stupid, but uh, yeah, I got in trouble on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so why ultimately did you leave the Bay Area? Oh, uh, well, you know, some time had gone by since Coast. You know, what happened to Coaster Quarters was it got uh, dot-commed, as we called it back then, which was the, you know, the beginning of the new um, sort of financial point of focus of the San Francisco Bay Area as it moved away from entertainment and strictly into um, uh, internet technology mostly. Yeah. Uh, communications, I guess they call it. So, uh, you know, that happened to Coast in the end of 2000. And I went freelance and, you know, seemed to do okay. I kept my head above water. You know, I had good connections and uh, owned a bunch of gear from working for Dan for five years. Uh, so um, I met my wife and we got married. And, you know, we were deeply in love and decided to go for it and have a kid. And then it's like, oh, you got a kid. You can't live in an apartment anymore. You got to get a house. It's like, well, you're in San Francisco. If you want to get a house, at, even at that point, and I think it's much more now, you were looking at signing up for a million dollars of debt, right? Right. Which, uh, which coincided with where the recording industry at that point was, where there was no way you were going to make anything more than $350 a day. That's an absolute ceiling, you know? And, and uh, I think it's probably still like that for most people now. It's difficult to pay for a mortgage of that size on that kind of income. And so, you know, we were looking around. We went down into LA and spent a lot of time driving around the freeway. 
I think we even looked at Nashville a little bit, but I'm not much of a Southern guy. My wife is, you know, but you know, I, I think I, I'm just too West Coast for that place. Uh, and then, so, you know, I'm from Portland, right? I, you know, I grew up here in Portland, moved down there to go to college, like I mentioned earlier, art school. The Portland music scene had really taken off, you know? So we came up here and, you know, I saw this on almost unrecognizable music scene to what I left in 1990 where there was nothing going on and, you know, there's just a few clubs and kind of a cool underground scene, but that was about it. Now there's this thriving thing and they have their own music festival and a good friend of mine was one of the main bookers in town and there was a, a whole network that I had access to that was, you know, just really exciting. A lot of great players and uh, interesting bands and was trying to achieve more and more national, even in inter- international attention. I'd always kind of vowed never to really backtrack, but it was cool to see my old friends and you know, we just decided to go for it. We moved back here again, got a nice house and a nice neighborhood and uh, opened up a studio pretty quickly that uh, that took right off. You know, I was able to um, kind of ride into my reputation a little bit, but also, I mean, there was just a lot of work, right? So yeah, it's been, it's been pretty good up here. Yeah. Much more affordable. Definitely. You know, I was, it's funny. I was, you know, thinking about that as I was getting ready to, uh, to get in touch with you today. I was like, you know, I bet he's going to ask me about, you know, what it's like for an artist in Portland. Because I think that's an interesting thing, right? Or maybe you weren't, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> so uh, it's much more like it was in the 90s in San Francisco, right? Where mm-hmm. you could afford to live here and you know live on, on uh, the sort of income you can make while being really serious about your music, right? Which is probably not more than, you know, I don't know, three or four grand a month, right? right. You know, and, and so I'm like, how much does it cost to live in Portland these days? You know, because it's been going up. You know, it's definitely it's becoming a popular place to live. But even now, right down the street from the studio I'm sitting at, which is in a really cool neighborhood, you can get a uh, two-bedroom, one-bath one, one bath place for, uh, for 1200 bucks a month, right? <laughs> right? Compare that wow. to the Bay Area. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, what, what, would, that, what would that be in San Francisco right now? 3000 a month, 4000 <laughs> Oh, you know, I, I'm going to just take a leap of faith here and tell you that would be you know, anywhere from four to 5,000. Yeah. And you'd have to, apparently what a new thing in, in San Francisco that I'm not really clear what the criteria is, but I think there's a, a landlords are requiring you to prove that you make a certain amount of money. And that certain amount of money has to be six figures and above in some, in some buildings. Uh-huh. We could go down a rabbit hole conversation about San Francisco and the cost of living. It's, it's prohibitively expensive unless you uh, have a high-paying tech job general, or a high-paying job, period. It doesn't matter if it's tech or not. So it's, it's, it's quite, I think it's typical in, uh, for most musicians, most uh, artsy people, to leave and go to places like Portland where it's more sustainable. Right, right. I mean, think about what it takes to to be a serious musician, right? And, you know, especially in the world we're in now where you're only really going to make money touring. That's, I mean, I think that's pretty much still where we're at. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, sure. I think you're certainly not going to make your rent selling records. Right. I mean, it's, they're kind of supposed to be free now, it seems like. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the industry we're working in. So, uh, you know, for someone to be able to have a home and be on the road, coming back with not a lot in their pocket, a little bit sometimes, you know, some of the artists I work with make money, you know, it's just gotta be cheap, you know? And also beyond that, you know, when you're off the road to be able to have a, this sort of pleasant life that you can actually make art in, right? 
where you're not, mm-hmm. you know, you're not busting your ass trying to pay some insane amount of rent or worried about, you know, someone kicking you out and you got to move again, right? I mean, I guess you could write some good blues songs there or something like that, but you know, <laughs> the, you know what I mean? The uh, you know, the deal is you got to have a comfortable place to create. That's why this has just turned out to be such a good spot for music, you know, I think really in the last 10 years it's been like that and it, there's no sign of that stop and I mean, it's the prices are going up a little bit here, but it's still very affordable and um, you know, you can see it all around you. I mean, you know, bands are moving here from the, all over the region, certainly. I mean, there's a yeah. lot of bands I'm working with that are, are, have roots in Idaho and um, Washington and uh, more and more from the Bay Area, actually. You know, but it's really turned out to be a great move for us leaving San Francisco and coming up here. So, you know, essentially back to your original question, the reason we decided to move was because we wanted to buy a house. You know, we had a kid. We're like, okay, we're going to start a family here. Let's do this. And uh, we came up here. We got a great place. But I couldn't be happier, you know, with the sort of sense of feeling I've got it, um, you know, kind of being part of a wave that's happening as opposed to uh, in the wake of it, right? Yeah. You know, where I found myself there a few times at, at certain big studios I worked at before where it's like, you know, you get in there, it's like, oh, this place is awesome. And then it's going down, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that was fun couple of years. You know, you want to be able to lay some roots. I, I mean, at least I do. I'm the sort of guy that likes to kind of build up things around me. My experience, uh, you know, I was in this 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 band, Seven Day Diary, many years ago. And oh, I remember you. You were in that band? Yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Yeah, I was, I was down in San Francisco at that point. Well, when the band broke up and uh, the bass player, uh, Nancy Hess, moved to uh, Portland, she was starting, she was doing some solo shows and she would end up uh, flying me up there to play drums with her because we we really got along she was a bass player as a drummer we got along as a rhythm section and and she's just trying to surround herself with familiar people so i went to portland several times and you know i met a lot of different people uh the musicians that i met just in the musicians alone i remember there's a guitar player that we were playing with and he was a waiter uh during the day but he was able to buy a house in portland on a waiter's salary just on his salary alone Sure, man. And it struck me then in the late 90s, wow, this place is affordable. This is an option for the future uh-huh. if, if things get really wacky. And right. uh, and then, you know, one by one, a lot of people just started moving there. And of course, Billy Anderson, who's been on the show, lives there. Yep. Um, Cliff Truesdell, who uh, composed the music for the podcast, he lives up there. So yeah, it's just, it's a great place to be. And it does have a feel like San Francisco did in the early days. When I first moved down to San Francisco, it felt a lot like Portland is now. You know, it was just kind of easy and free. I mean, you sort of, you kind of feel like the, a sense of the hate street era sort of hanging around. As a matter of fact, we used to hang around on hate street. So <laughs> I guess it really was like that for me, but well, and um, there was a lot of clubs. There was, a, there was a lot of music happening in San Francisco then. And yeah, it's great just not like that now. Right. That, I think that's, you know, what lured me back into playing in a band actually was that the, you know, the, the nightlife scene was so much fun. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really what I wanted to do was just, you know, be out there rocking out and having a great time. Well, so tell me, tell me about being in Portland now. Tell me about uh, the progression of what's happened because I think a bit's happened since you've come back. Yeah. Like I said, I, I do feel like we got here you know, maybe just a little ahead of a wave. And so because I was able to uh, lay some roots down and and start kind of moving up into the state I'm in now where you know, I'm, I'm in a huge studio. 
that uh that i operate and um my wife and i have a uh, guitar store that we run out of it and uh there's also a record label and uh, we have a little bit of brick and mortar here in the building too for that label you know so uh as that stuff was building you know it was being propelled by the fact you know that the industry is really strong here there's a lot of people that want to record they have uh different sizes of budgets generally not huge but occasionally pretty healthy right you can uh, spend some time on a record if it's necessary Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, what I've seen happen is a lot of uh, a lot of people moving here from other places and some particularly impressive characters, really, like people from the Bay Area or guys where like, you know, they kind of already done their wild years and they just want to come here because it's it's really um, environmentally nice kind of in, in a uh, in a nature sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's mountains and the ocean and rivers all over the place and it's kind of beautiful. And so they just kind of come here to slow down. But then I think they get here and they realize that the music scene is totally happening here. And so they end up working with bands anyway. <laughs> like I've met not only, you know, you know, the guy who um, started Interscope with um, uh, Jimmy Ivan, uh, Tony Ferguson lives up here now. And he and I have been communicating on things. And he's like, even though he's supposed to be retired, he, he can't help it. He's working with bands, you know. And uh, actually, the guy who's got Studio A right now, Ron Nevison, uh, he's, I was just talking in the hallway, um, who produced The Who and a whole bunch of stuff. And if you're familiar with that guy or not, he moved to, to uh, Hood River, which is just right on the Columbia Gorge from Portland here. It's you know 40 minute drive, I think probably you know for that period of his life. But he, now he's here in the studio working with the band, <laughs> you know, right down the street from my house. Uh, Tom Fly, who you know was you know when I was at Coast, he was the guy. You know, he'd come around and tell you stories about recording Elvis and stuff, and you know recording super freak and songs like that you know just lives right on my street and he's still doing things occasionally with mickey hart and those guys you know so it's kind of funny you know it's the old guard is here right and so right. you know you know it's it's made for a very interesting kind of um uh atmosphere to work in business wise you know like it's it's starting to remind me more and more of how it was back in the mid 90s with the sort of characters at least i was encountering down in the bay area right guys with a lot of stories to tell and a lot of experience you know and you know and Billy even, right? Even Billy oh, Anderson. Like, I would definitely, like, you know, I'd, I'd give him credit for bringing up the sort of level of standards that a place has. You know, because it's like, oh, you worked with this band and this band. Wow, okay, so we're making real records here, right? You know, it's healthy. Yeah, I mean, Ray's, Billy's Ray's, been at it for a long time. Yeah, you know, it's funny. He just, he and I are great old friends, but he disclosed to me the other day, uh, <laughs> I hope he hears this too, um, that um, uh, the first demo that he did that was like a complete project that he did on his own was the band that I joined when I moved to San Francisco. Uh, Slaufe. Oh, wow. Yeah, this this band that's still going now. Great friends of mine still. But uh, he's like, hey, you remember that old demo tape? And he's like, yeah, my mom just gave me a copy of it. It's because sitting around at her desk for decades, you know, <laughs> the, the metal band I was in in 1990. He's like, yeah, that's pretty much the first thing I did, like all the way through from top to bottom. And he's like, you got a copy of that? I'm like, man, I do. And we got to digitize that thing. <laughs> you want to talk about a character. Billy is a qu- the quintessential character. And he, like I said, has really been he's been recording i mean i think i met billy in 1988 or 1989 uh-huh and i remember him recording i think then yeah that what we we worked with him in 90 so it was it would have been right after that right you know uh he was working at a razor's edge which is a place that right. i almost almost ended up reopening um do you remember that studio just down in uh divisadero divisadero yeah yeah, I'd never been to it, but I always knew of it and associated Billy with it. 
Yeah, Billy and a guy named Jonathan Burnside. Um, he's a great guy. He moved off to Australia years and years ago. But and I think actually Fat Mike was in there for a second, or maybe was thinking about it before he opened up his place that he has over in Potrero. But anyway, um, when we were going to open Studio C up, me and the guys who still have that place now uh, down at Hyde Street, uh, we'd looked at Razor's Edge for a second, and it was just funny what a weird, just tiny little room that place was. You know, like, I mean, it was essentially a rectangle, too, you know? <laughs> uh, and there was one wall that somebody had kind of, like, built the plaster out on just, like, a couple inches. And I guess that was enough to make it a good place to put the drums or something. I don't know. <laughs> but... um yeah, it was just funny. Like, the, I mean, Kurt Cobain recorded in there and stuff, you know, like Melvin's, wow. all, all kinds of big stuff. Happened oh, yeah. Because Billy's, um, Billy's history with the Melvins is, is, goes back. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about the Howlowed Halls. Well, the Howlowed Halls is, uh, it's my latest place, right? I think it's the sixth studio I built, counting the little tiny ones. And uh, it's a, um, Literally a Carnegie Hall, right? In the sense that uh, around 1910, the uh, Carnegie Foundation um, put a budget together for 30 libraries in Oregon. Uh, I guess, you know, they were big philanthropists and um, just dumping a lot of money into different programs like that. And so they built these places. And it was because it was that time period, of course, it's got all the crown molding and, you know, it's a beautiful architecture in the place. It's a brick building, right? Which is nice sonically. Uh, for a studio. One thing that Dan Alexander pointed out to me, he was also, you know, had tons of experience building studios uh, and has always given me great advice for that. But um, at one point I was looking at a church and he's like, no, you don't want to do a church because churches are designed for the music to go out of, right? They're designed to be sonically transparent, right? Because you want to be able to hear it from outside or down the street even, right? Get more people to come. Where a library is kind of the opposite, right? You know, a library, the idea is that it's quiet inside, you know, so it's not made of wood, it's made of brick. And so, uh, you know, I came across this place. Uh, these guys had uh, contracted me to help them design a studio. Um, some guys had worked in a, with, uh, were in a band uh, the year before at the places I was working out of. You know, I was like, great, that sounds really fun. You know, so I found this building and uh, uh, the architecture is just amazing. You know, I brought a snare drum in when it was all emptied out. And it's just a big, huge room with the 18-foot ceilings and it just sounded incredible. I mean, it sounded like the best reverb you could have on that snare drum, right? <laughs> Just live. So then we got to making plans. You know, I've always been kind of a nerd about, you know, the uh, architectural design of famous studios. And um, I was looking at it and then, you know, I was like, man, dimensions of this thing are uh, really, you know, really great. And they, they kind of remind me of what I'd read a little bit about Studio Two over at Abbey Road. And so I pulled it out, but went to their website and they have actually... Um, some floor plans of the studio there on the uh, the sites, the pages for different studios. And I looked at it, and man, the dimensions were exactly the same. It's like, you know, 32 by 50-something, right, for the live room. I'm like, this is awesome. I can basically roughly base this around Studio 2. And so when I designed the room, I did. And then we were looking at control rooms and ISOs and how that would work out and what kind of console we wanted to get. And the concept of a, uh, a Neve Genesis came up. And I went back over to that Abbey Road page, and that's exactly what they have in Studio Two. So <laughs> we got that one too. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, at that point, we stopped copying Abbey Road and started building our own studio. <laughs> anyway, the live room—the size of it—is the same as Studio Two, almost the same ceiling. I think they're a couple feet higher than this, but the dimensions of the floor are the same, and um, same console, roughly the same size of control room. You know, sort of a different shape. I I kind of prefer um, uh, non-parallel walls, and uh, theirs are fairly parallel there. And then we got a couple ISOs that are built into it. The whole thing, I preserved all the gigantic windows the library had and uh, invented these sort of window caps that can kind of go over it, 
without um, damaging the shell of the building, which uh, made it so we could hold on to the historical landmark status, which is both cool because I like old buildings and also it's great financially. So that's how we got Studio A up and running. And then there was another wing in the back that I kind of set aside for myself uh, as an overdub room and mix room. And uh, it turned out to actually be a pretty good small drum tracking room in that Studio B. And that all stuff, all this stuff was online in July. You know, we um, sank a bit of money into the architecture and had a lot of guys build it and uh, had it up and running. It's been fairly booked ever since. I mean, I think Studio B's been booked almost every day. And A's booked, I don't know, about, you know, three quarters, uh, four fifths of the time, which is not bad for a big room, right? Yeah. I think it's, you know, on the average, I think that's pretty good. You know, it's definitely paying its bills, which is great. Um, and then, you know, about that time that we were open the studio, uh, my wife had still been doing her, uh, corporate design job down in San Francisco and they decided they wanted to stop hiring her remote remotely, which, um, was bittersweet. You know, it was a, it was a good paycheck, but at the same time, kind of soulless work, you know, uh, working for the people that complain, the, the people that everyone complains about all the time. You know? So she decided, she, you know, she wanted to uh, work a little closer to me, which I thought was awesome. We decided to get this guitar store going here. And uh, it actually, you know, is a really sensible component for a recording studio to have an equipment store in the same place. Yeah. You know? So I had like half of our clientele is people that are recording in the studios. And uh, especially more for the big ticket items, you know, guitars and amps and stuff like that, because they're hanging around, they're trying them out, you know, and they just find something they really like and they just end up taking it with them, you know. And um, so that's worked out well, too. And that's pretty much what is in the building. You know, it's the uh, the the guitar store is St. Frank's Music, and it's just mm-hmm. wedged in between Studio A and Studio B, and that fills up the whole place. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Justin Phelps here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break with Audio Technica. And usually I always mention a specific product when, when we take the sponsor break. And this time I just want to mention a little bit about the company, something that I don't think many people know. A lot of people assume that Audio Technica came out of the 80s or the 90s, and that's when they first appeared on the market. Well, that's actually not true. They actually were established in 1962, believe it or not, in Tokyo, Japan by Hideo Matsushita, and they were created as a phonograph cartridge manufacturer. Uh, they had uh, two products, the uh, the AT1 and the AT3MM, both of the stereo phono cartridges. And obviously, things picked up a little bit from there uh, as time went along. And, you know, they ventured into other transducer-type products. Of course, headphones and microphones. You know, then they do some other products. Some, uh, you know, they do turntables and such. So that's something that I didn't know. And you know, they're always working on really cool and innovative ideas and coming out with great, great products as a result. One of the things that they did in 2005 is they created this thing called Uniguard. And what it was, it was a method for making microphones uh, resistant, essentially, to radio frequency interference. And that could be from uh, Bluetooth devices, cell phones, uh, wireless computer networks, walkie-talkies, you know, that kind of a thing. And 13 patents were involved in bringing that whole concept to fruition. And as, as company engineers modified all the different elements uh, of microphone construction and operation, they went back to 50 existing Audio-Technica microphone models and upgraded them with this, this kind of RFI-resistant technology. So they're really doing good work, and I just think that their products are a perfect fit uh, for working-class audio. I'm a big fan of their products. Uh, they're solid. They do the job. Uh, they have some super high-end stuff that's uh, 
kind of kind of on the expensive side, but they also have some super high-end stuff that's on the not-so-expensive side, which is great. So there it is. If you have never been over to their website, I encourage you to go, audio-technica.com. Have a look around. If you're looking for new headphones, new mics, a new turntable, any of that stuff, you know, you might want to consider that before you just go jump to one of the other manufacturers. There's a lot of choices out there. I encourage you to check out Audio Technica. All right. Well, that's it. Let's get back to it with Justin Phelps here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. There's two two things I'm confused about. Um, first of all, this building that you have, is it something that you rent? We don't own the building. No. Okay. And But you said it had historical landmark status. It is a historical landmark, yeah. So uh, it was a library up until 72, I think. Okay. And then uh, the county used it for various things. Um, most of them kind of boring, really, you know, like uh, parole offices and stuff like that. You know, it was just kind of, it seemed like it just kind of washed back and forth for a few decades. And, uh, and then eventually they just decided to sell it because they're probably sitting empty most of the time. And some guys that, you know, got there about six months before us just were there and they got this 5,500 square foot building, which is just beautiful to see. I mean, it's got the glass couple on top, which I am definitely wiring for, as an ISO booth. And they got it for a quarter million, which is, I mean, the square footage alone, it's just, it's mind blowing. I mean, it's less than I paid for my house, you know, which is not that big. A quarter million. A quarter million effort for a 5,500 square foot building. It just looks like a palace. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, But they were there at the right time. And so there are landlords. The nice thing about them getting it so cheap, though, is that our overhead is very low, which makes it so that we can rent the studio out for a price that anybody can afford. You know, I mean, the day rate in A is... uh, Anywhere between, you know, 350 and 450 and uh, depending on, you know, how much time, what your budget is. And then uh, in B, you know, which is just my private studio. I mean, I'm renting it by the month. I mean, you know, I just kind of slide in scale, but I mean, I can, I can make a record in there for $10,000 with no problem at all. But you, you're part of the team that runs the studio. So I, I'm, uh, I have the, <laughs> the luxurious title of chief engineer. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Which means if the intern doesn't show up, I got to go get the coffee. <laughs> well, so uh, wh- who, who are the other people involved and what, what's their role? Well, this, you know, it's funny. It's kind of starting to move towards a communal sense. There's a lot of people involved. There's the guy who financed it, who is just a musician in town who wants to have a place where he can record for free, essentially. You know, and he uh, came into a bunch of cash and um, a super generous dude. And uh, he just decided to drop a bunch of it on this place, you know, and, you know, I don't know if he intends to see a profit from that initial investment ever, but, you know, he made the place happen, right? Uh, he paid me to help design it, you know, he paid all the, uh, carpenters and, um, bought the console and all the materials that went into it. And it was a big bill by the end of it. It's huge actually, but he seems pretty content to just kind of keep the place going, you know, and, uh, it breaks even at least every month. So that's cool. Right. Right. Uh, and then there's a guy who is um, sort of the studio manager. I mean, he's not around much, but he kind of, you know, makes sure the bills get paid. I guess in, in a lot of ways, he's just, you know, kind of doing bookkeeping. But he's the other uh, the other guy who, you know, who started the place with me and the initial investor. And then there's uh, like a handful of engineers that just kind of book themselves into the place. You know, their bands can afford it because it's pretty inexpensive. You know, we just kind of deal with it day by day as far as making sure all the materials come in and things are taken care of and maintenance is kept up. And it seems to kind of work out fine that way. Well, that's great. Yeah, it's a simple structure, really, if, if you think about it that way. It's whoever's using the studio that day is responsible for it, right? If you're an outside engineer coming in, 
do you have the luxury of having assistants or is it kind of you're on your own kind of a thing? We have a, a pretty big intern program here and okay. they do, they do get moved up in about six months to assist engineer spots. And you know, it's, it's the sort of thing where the client pays them. So, I mean, it could be an intern who's a little more advanced, who's willing to do it for free or for lunch or whatever. Um, mm. just, just to pick up experience. A lot of times they end up going away with the engineer and doing other stuff afterwards, you know, uh, which is also great for them. Right. I mean, as, as you know, when you're getting started, you take whatever you can, you know? Oh yeah. Of uh, course. and, um, and then there's guys who have been around here since we were building the place. They were actually involved in the construction that, you know, they get paid 10, 12 bucks an hour, which, you know, you know, they're young guys that, you know, are free to, um, work long hours, you know, at a, you know, fairly low pay, but I think, you know, their lifestyle is, uh, is simple enough that that makes ends meet. I guess kind of like I was in my late twenties, you know, I was doing the exact same thing, basically. You're a family guy. So, um, how's the school system work out for you? You happy with that? Oh, in Portland, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a product of it. (laughs) I support and endorse it. Obviously that's always a consideration for a parent, you know, is to consider the school system and, whether or not that's going to work for you aside from, you know, the adult needs of, you know, of the professional engineer of studios and bands and music scene. Absolutely. You know, the, the whole city has a very neighborhood vibe. I mean, I, I don't, it, there is a downtown and it's thriving, but um, nobody lives down there, you know, and all, all the, all the studios are out in more of the residential parts of town. A lot of musicians that I work with here, I think, well, probably not more than San Francisco, but there's a lot that have kids also, you know, they just they just live around here and uh we all kind of work together and stuff you know so you're uh you're day to day now you you rent this uh stu- you rent studio b that's kind of your your place yeah you know occasionally other guys use it billy uses it sometimes um there's a couple other guys uh, uh todd rundgren's son just moved to town uh, rebop he's been uh renting the room and um a couple of the guys i've met through bands that have uh, decided to put on the producer hat that uh, really have a knack for it. And uh, they, um, they've been using it, you know, and uh, you know, it's a nice little extra bit of income for me. I mean, you know, I do a lot of mastering too uh, over at the studio I built before this one. Um, the mastering room is still up and running and uh, cloud city sound. And so there's many days where I'm over mastering all day at cloud city and simultaneously somebody's using the studio here. So that's nice income wise uh, for me and the family too, you know, that's great. Yeah. From a, you know, workflow perspective, you have, uh, is the knee, the Genesis is in your room? No, that's in studio A. That's in studio A. What I'm curious about your, uh, your mixing workflow these days. Are you an in the box or in, out of the box or hybrid kind of gent? I, I use a summing mixer. I've got, I've got a knee in here too. An 8816. Okay. A summing mixer. Um, oh, okay. Right. right. I've had it. I've, I think I, I think I bought it when they first came out. I mean, uh, I noticed that mine has a different faceplate than than all the rest of them. So I think it might have been a, a real early one. Uh, and, you know, I kind of got into that back. Um, geez, what led to that? Uh, I was at the plant at that point. And uh, I was learning SSLs. You know, I'd always been using Neves up to that point. And I like the sound of Neves a lot, especially for recording. I think what happened was I was trying my hand at stuff in the box. It was about maybe 2001, 2002. And I wasn't digging the sound, you know, just because I was also going over to the plant and using the SSLs there. And I could really tell a difference. I mean, I know some guys argue with that, but, and maybe it's at that point, things have gotten better. But, you know, the plug-in EQs just didn't sound as good as the console EQs and the compressors didn't sound as good as the outboard compressors. 
you know, what we'd end up doing is uh, getting everything all together in the box and then spinning it out onto a 9,000J or something like that. And then you'd have to spend a day or two kind of working the, uh, adapting to the console, right? Because it right. Didn't, didn't really sound exactly the same when it came out. I mean, you know, all the automation was there, but the way it hit the board kind of changed it too, I think. And then, of course, we'd also get into some of the outboard stuff because, I mean, how could you resist, right? Uh, of course. <laughs> so yeah. uh, the uh, 8816 came out. I think it was actually... Might have been John Kunaberti who who turned me on to the concept of of using a summing mixer. He'd built with his own, and uh, I think he did it all with Neve transformers, like a little eight channel box. Yeah, you know, he might even still be using it. And so I saw the eighty sixty. I'm like, well, that's more or less like the thing John built, and uh, I like the sound of his. And so I went for it, and I got it, and I, you know, I've been using it ever since. It's a great device. I mean, it sounds awesome. Uh, I've been told it's uh, I think it's called a ten eighty one card in there, which is the summing card. Uh, the old 8068s, I believe. Could yeah. be wrong. You know, Neve geeks go ahead and attack on that one. You know, <laughs> uh, whatever the case is, it sounds good. So, <laughs> um, and I I can tell the difference. You know, when I've got something that's all like a lot of times stuff will come to me with a premix on it, right? And I'll listen to it. And I'll be listening through two channels, and then I'll go ahead and spread it out on the 8016. And like it, to me, it sounds much better. I mean, it's clearer, a little more depth and sound, just like everybody says, you know, and it's yeah. nice to be it's nice to be able to use my SSL compressor on instead of a plug in. You know, I, I like the sound of that. And I kind of like the tactile interface of, you know, setting the threshold by hand just feels good. You know, um, I'm curious. So now that you have spent many years back in, in the place you you're familiar with in terms of that is Portland and it's economically more forgiving um, in terms of, uh, you know, keeping the boat afloat, as an engineer, what's what's your general economic philosophy? You know, how do you how do you relate to money as an engineer? Is it uh, foreign to you, or or do you are you you consider yourself financially savvy, or? Uh, you know, I think of myself as more of a survivalist. Okay, um, I like know, that. I, yeah, well, you know, I, I don't I don't come from a rich family, and you know, I've I'm it's a very blue collar family, and uh, you know, my parents worked really hard, and uh, so I always have too. And so, um, you know, when there was that huge change uh, financially in the recording industry, uh, I kind of panicked, uh, to be honest with you. I think I went blind in one eye. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then uh, and I was like, well, you know, nobody's going to bail me out here. You know, at that point, I think I was 30 or something like that. And so I just found a way to make it work. I mean, you know, I'd been working for Dan for five years at that point, and he'd give me a lot of second engineer pay in trade for gear. And so I had a ton of equipment. So a lot, like a lot of it I still use now because it's all good stuff, you know, like um, his own designs, the mic preamps and uh, some manly stuff and, you know, UA stuff, things like that. You know, I just kind of just found ways to, uh, to make it work. And I, I think I always have been since then, you know, and, and where we're at now, it seems like, you know, the, uh, the ceiling for what an engineer can make per day hasn't really gone much higher in the last uh, 15 years. You know, it's always been around, like for me at least, at least from my perspective, and maybe other people have figured out a better way, but um, where I'm at, it's, you just can't get much above like four, 450 a day tops, you know? And if you want to own a home and have a family and drive a car and stuff like that, like that's, you know, you kind of got to figure out a way to make more than that because, you know, life is expensive. We've got this music store now. Uh, I've got a record label I'm working on which is not making any money selling records, but it actually has opened up a whole new spectrum of clients, which is kind of cool. And, you know, I give them, 
major discounts because they're on the label, you know, but it's still, it's like, it's people I wouldn't be working with otherwise. Right. And that leads to other things, you know, so having that kind of um, just a multiple input kind of thing going on and having a room you can rent, for instance, like I mentioned earlier, I can be mastering in one place and at the same time rent my gear and the stuff to somebody else. Right. That's the way to make ends meet, you know, because you're not going to get it sitting in a studio, you know, making 250, 350 bucks a day. It's just, you know, you're never going to get above, you know, renting an apartment and like, you know, you can't like, you can't, you can't build on that really. That's just enough to survive. At least for me, it is, right. you know. So you're, you're, uh, you're multitasking and, you know, mastering obviously is, is a whole nother ball of wax financially, uh, such a, I don't know, such a different animal financially uh, not as much time spent on the music as say, you know, tracking. And it's, I find it very pleasurable just because it's, it gives you that exposure to the music. It gets you paid for the work and then you're out. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's just a really different, it's just a really different activity. You know, I, uh, I didn't start till 2008. Coon again, you know, I went back down and, um, you were still, you know, in touch and, uh, a lot, you know, he had me, come over to his place and I sat with him for a couple of days and he just showed me how not to screw it up basically. <laughs> and then, uh, I found a place up here. Uh, Rick McMillan's a guy who's been around here since, uh, the eighties, definitely a old school Portland engineer. And, um, he had a great studio and, uh, you know, let me start working out of their mastering wise. And he's got all the stuff I wanted to, to start with, you know, G and L EQ and, uh, you know, a few different compressors to choose from, which seems kind of the way to go. You know, Genelec monitoring system, a room that's set up just for mastering. I've really been enjoying it. I mean, I have to tell you, there's sometimes when it's kind of a pain in the ass, though, a little bit, you know, compared to how a recording session is where everyone's just relaxed and having a great time, you know, like there's a stiffness to mastering, especially when you get into file delivery and things like that, that can, it can be a little bit of a grind, you know? I don't mind, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just part of the process. And when the day's done, you got this great sounding record. It's totally cool and well worth it. I don't like all the, like the file delivery format stuff. It's just <laughs> after a while, it's like, God, this, I should put a lab coat on now, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's funny because it is, you know, as I talked with uh, a couple episodes ago, I talked with Jessica Thompson and she advised against, you know, people dabbling in mastering or, or, or not devoting everything to mastering just, but I mean, I think personality wise, you know, we all differ and, uh, Jessica's a, a very focused individual, not to say that you're unfocused, but yeah, there's certain parts of each activity. I think that really pulls each of us in, in different ways. You know, some people don't like to mix or they can mix, but they just, they would prefer to be tracking and vice versa. And, mastering or not mastering and i couldn't agree with you more man i mean i i know engineers that don't like working with musicians yeah i mean (laughs) it's pretty pretty insane to think about that it's like well wait why are you doing this then (laughs) from my perspective that's my favorite part (laughs) yeah for me it really uh all the different activities and i i told jessica this because we were getting into we were talking about archiving and restoration you know as she had advised you know against dabbling and really really focusing on the craft i said yeah my only problem with that is is that life's too short and i want to try it all i want to do it all because you know tracking tracking definitely has that kind of and i think you'd agree it has kind of a communal vibe to it yeah Uh, Yeah, mixing and 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 uh mixing and mastering kind of 
uh, depending on how you mix, if you mix, you know, with people in the room or attended or unattended, mixing definitely draws me in for various reasons and mastering uh, uh, for a whole nother set of reasons. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I don't know. I, I see the draw of all of it and all of it appeals to the various aspects of my own personality. And I'm sure, um, you know, beyond money talk, all the different activities are, are fun in their own different ways. And then they each also have their, their downside too. Yeah. Yeah. Occasionally, occasionally. Um, yeah. And there's, and there's some art to be had in mastering. I mean, there definitely is, you know, it's, I mean, you do mastering, you know what I'm talking about. You know, it's, there's a lot of style on how you turn it up. Right. <laughs> there isn't there you know? I, I, no, oh i'm i'm in total agreement i just like how you how you phrase that there's a lot of style in how you turn it up right you know i mean that's basically what you're there to do is make things all loud then in the same the same volume right um at least in the digital age i think that's pretty much where we're at right uh it's the thing that people are counting on you for at least i guarantee that much but <laughs> uh but the way you do it is you know there's some art in that you know not screwing up the mix right not uh, making it too harsh, right? All the things that you know you complain about from bad mastering jobs you get. Um, I, you know what's it, what's fascinating for me is uh, having being on the other side of that relationship uh, with the mix engineer. Whereas I'm used to, in the past, I was used to being the mix engineer and and talking to the mastering engineer and being like, "Oh my god, don't screw up my mix." And so I empathize now, of course, with the mix engineer, and I'm very like, "Oh, I." I, I don't want to destroy what I'm working on here. Yeah, man, that's it. You know, it's, I got to send you some stuff for mastering then. Cause that's, that's, that's exactly how I feel. You know, it's, you know, people have, have come so far when they get to that room at the end of the line. Right. I mean, <laughs> and, and you kind of, you need to have been there through all those steps yourself from the first kick drum microphone all yeah. the way down to like, you know, how many guitars are we going to layer onto it? Okay. Now you get to the mix, like, you know, how much reverb? What are we going to do this? How's the bass feel? I mean, it's the, you know, the, the amount of deliberation is just endless. I mean, on some records, it's hundreds of hours to figure out how it's going to sound. And then you got a guy who's separate from the whole thing, sitting in a completely different place, different town a lot of times, um, just completely isolated, making a call on it, right? And so for me, you know, the thing to do is just not change it. <laughs> right? like, identify what it is they were going for try to really get the vibe and then just hold on to that thing for dear life and find a way to turn it up exactly yeah and 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 eq it uh its strengths and weaknesses to uh, a degree that help it translate but don't sabotage yeah man yeah there's a lot of art that goes into it you know i know that some mastering engineers are very i don't know they they kind of hold the thought that you shouldn't if you're a mix engineer or you're a tracking engineer, you should never get into mastering. I disagree because I feel like coming from the tracking and mixing world, you have a deep appreciation for what the hell has gone on to get it to that point. Not that mastering engineers who only focus on mastering don't, but it's, it's a perspective that I think when you get to mastering, you're like, okay, I know these people worked hard on this. I need to be really careful here. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You know, it's uh 
yeah, just don't screw it up. You know, like I said, that's what John told me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's pretty simple. Just it's don't simple. screw it up. You know, you get guys where it's like, oh, you know, I'm going to like, I'm going to paint with the sound. Like, it's like, oh, geez. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm getting nervous here. <laughs> Do we have to change the color of the paint? Because I mean, I, we kind of like it the way it is, you know? <laughs> right. Spend some time thinking about this color. <laughs> Well, so uh, we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you about uh, your work-life balance with your family. How do you make it work? I got to tell you, my wife, she made it work. You know, she moved her career directly outside the door of my mix room. And, you know, for the 10 years or so of our marriage before that, it was always a challenge, right? You know, I'm working long days like all engineers do, coming home late at night, not seeing anybody, you know, and uh, sometimes for weeks in a row, right? <laughs> and it's, you know... I mean, she's a strong woman to get through that, right? Because our first, our first daughter, she raised in that state. Um, but, you know, since we got the store here and they're directly involved, I mean, you know, a third of the time the kids are in the building, right? You know, they're not in the control room during the session and stuff like that, but they're like hanging on the lounge or like in the store, just running around doing stuff. It's a big place. So um, it's been pretty awesome ever since then. I mean, I see them all the time and it's, it, we're real close and, you know, uh, they're checking out what's going on with what I do, which I think is pretty interesting. I think they like it too, you know? I know that's a hard thing to achieve and, you know, I'm, I feel lucky because we have. It is, but, you know, I, I got to say from, you know, the perspective of our world, our recording world that you and I run in and uh, obviously the thousands of listeners that are tuning in, you know, when, when you are in a family environment um, and you have it solid and you've sorted it out, man, it really can make the difference in your day in the studio. That's a great motivator, that's for sure. You, you're a lot more at ease when you know that you've managed to orchestrate your world to keep everybody happy and the kids happy and the, 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 your spouse happy. It's important. I think about them a lot of times when I'm deciding how, how much I'm going to make things kick ass. I really, I really do. I have to tell you that's like, that's a spark in there. You know, like I think about them when I'm deciding how hard I'm going to work on something. Which, uh, you know, like I said, it's a great motivator. You know, it's, I recommend it for everybody, but, you know, at the same time, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a very different lifestyle than that of a, a single young man running around, you know, going on tour or whatever. How many kids do you have? Two. Two daughters. Two. Okay. Sounds like you're at a great place. And I think, uh, sounds like you made some smart decisions to get out of the Bay Area uh, at a particular time and really thrive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I recommend leaving San Francisco to anybody, you know, it's, uh, unless, unless you're in the dot-com world, you know, and then you got to be there for sure. But, uh, it's just not, it's not the place for making music anymore. As far as I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. That, that particular city is, 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 is a challenge. I will say from, if you're just trying to like live there and, and make music, it's very difficult to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, unless you're, you know, successful in, uh, in something else. Yeah. Yeah. You got to have the right environment. That's for sure. And that's, that's what's made the good. That's what, that's what's made the good music towns the way they are or have been at times, you know, uh, it being a, a place that's very conducive for a, um, an artist class. Right. Yeah. Well, which is why I think a lot of people speaking of the Bay area specifically, a lot of people have moved to Oakland and further East uh -huh. uh, of san francisco uh to make it work yeah yeah i've heard the music scene in oakland's pretty happening i actually I, I work with some artists from there now even you know they come up and it seems seems like it's better it's a little more affordable but even there even there it's the rents are getting high and you know 
Oh, yeah. I think Detroit's yeah. going to be the next big one, personally. I think it's just a matter yeah. of time. Yeah, you know, um, that's funny you say that, because I think Jack White uh, just opened up a, uh, a brand new pressing plant for, for vinyl there. Cool. Yeah, we got one here, too. Cascade. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, it's great. The place is thriving, too. I just finished a uh, Poison ID EP, and man, they did it. So it's all the, audit, the music's on one side, right? And the other side is this kick butt laser engraving of their uh, logo, the skull with the uh, the uh, barbed wire running through the back of it. Yeah, it's so so cool to have it right here too. Like you know, I mentioned that we have a label that we're starting, and I um, God, I think it saves us five six hundred bucks on shipping on a regular basis. Just being able to drive over to Milwaukee and pick up the stuff, right? Uh, to Milwaukee, Milwaukee Street, Milwaukee, Oregon is. Uh, oh, Milwaukee, it's, Oregon. It's basically oh. part of Portland. You know, it's the equivalent of. Um, I don't know, like uh, Daily City. Okay, okay, I get it. I, I didn't know there was a, a, a Milwaukee, Oregon. So, oh yeah, they drink a lot. They drink a lot of beer there too. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, man. This has been great to talk to you and, and get this perspective. And I, I thank you for taking the time to to speak with me. It's this has been fun. Yeah, it has been fun, man. Uh, anytime. Yeah, and uh, I tell you, uh, I do have uh, still have many friends in in Portland, so. Uh, next time I come up there, I will uh, I will call you and uh, come over to the Hallowed Halls. Please do. I'd love to show you around, Matt. It's a uh, it's a really cool place. I'm I'm very proud of it. Well, cool, man. I'm going to let you get to work, and I'm going to get to work. And uh, great to talk to you, man. Yeah, definitely, Matt. Okay, talk soon, man. Okay, see ya. Justin Phelps on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Justin come and chat with us. Appreciate that. I want to say thanks to him for taking the time out. He's a very very busy guy, and. Uh, Glad to have had the chance to speak with him. So that's it. We're out of time. We have to thank everybody. We have to thank Cliff Truesdell for the music. We have to thank Chuck Smith for his voice. And of course, we got to thank Cole Williams for his help on the YouTube side. And we got to thank our sponsors, Gearslets.com, Universal Audio Focal Monitors and Audio Technica. And thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>